Last year, Hollywood was turned on its head when a movie about a crucifixion became the third largest money maker of all time. The movie presented a vivid portrayal of the crucifixion of Christ. And in a number of cases, it left an indelible mark upon the people who viewed it. The movie was explicitly cruel and gory, in contradiction to the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of our Lord. I've read the Gospels this past year over and over and over again. And although in some cases close to a third of the Gospel account is given over to the Passion Week, there's remarkably little said in terms of the actual crucifixion. Sometimes it occupies a a verse or two. It says he was scourged and he was crucified. It does not go into graphic detail of what crucifixion entailed. And I think the reason is because the Bible is not so much interested in the fact of the crucifixion. Its focus is on the meaning of the crucifixion. In the words of the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it was carried out according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Open your Bibles to John chapter 18. We are going to begin this week, and it will certainly carry us into next and perhaps beyond, into the Roman trials of Christ. We looked previously at the Jewish trials. There were three of them, you'll remember. The trial before Annas, the trial before Caiaphas, and a few representatives of the Sanhedrin, and then the early dawn trial before the full full Sanhedrin with Caiaphas. I use the word trials, by the way, in a, I guess with quotation marks around them because they were anything but a real trial. But the, the gospel narrative turns here, beginning in verse 28 of John 18, and it turns to the Roman part of the evening. Rome's involvement in the crucifixion of the Son of God. And so as we begin to look, we're going to look at, I put it all together, verses 28 of John 18 all the way through verse 16 of John 19, so you know it would be impossible for me to cover that much material in one week. But that is the unit of thought. It is that big. And there are three phases to this Roman portion, just like there were three phases to the Jewish portion. But as I was reading through this and thinking about how to present it, how to explain it, how to to, uh, drive it home to all of us, 
What kept coming back to my mind was Pilate's desperate attempts to extricate himself from this process. He doesn't really want to condemn Christ. And so, in fact, six times he tries to get rid of it. And each attempt to dismiss it becomes increasingly more desperate on Pilate's behalf. He just can't get rid of Christ. I mean, he could have, as we'll see, but he... He, every way he turns to try to push this away from him, it's cut off and it's back in his lap again. What will you do with Jesus Christ, Pilate? And so as we see these six increasingly desperate attempts to release Jesus, what we will see is a man who has, in the process of crucifying his own soul, Thus, I've entitled this, The Crucifixion of Pilate. Jesus is not a victim. He's never been a victim, right? Through the whole process, we've been pointing out his incredible, supernatural, and amazing uh, human response to the to the pressure that comes upon him. And he's never out of control the whole time. It is everybody else around him who's going crazy. And the same will be true here as we look through this section together. And so what comes to me as I continue to study this and think about it and process it is the simple lesson that to turn away from Jesus Christ is to crucify your own soul. And that's indeed what Pilate does. Instead of making the one decision that was right... By his own acknowledgement, he refuses to do that and in the process crucifies his own soul. Let me read a little bit and get us going here. John 18, beginning in verse 28. They led Jesus, therefore, from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Pilate therefore went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Pilate therefore said to him, or to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. So right here in this short section, we, we encounter the first attempt of Pilate to get rid of this case that has come before him. It's in verse 31. Take him yourselves. Take him yourselves. Now, there's a bunch of background that sits behind this, and I think it's worth the time to build it because it will, we'll build off of it like a good foundation, not only today, but in the weeks to come. So let me do that for you, just reminding you a little bit of what we studied earlier. Three phases to the Jewish sham trial. First, before Annas, as I said, and then before Caiaphas and a, and a few of the Sanhedrin. That's where they, they slap him around and, and get him to, to, Speak in such a way that, that Caiaphas says he's blasphemed, tears the robe, and you know, you, you remember that. And then 
early in the daylight hours, they need an official condemnation, and Jewish law prevents them from doing that during the dark. So they wait until the sun just begins to crest, and they bring him before the whole Sanhedrin, and there they judge him guilty, and now they drag him off. Again, take a look at verse 28. Early, it says, they drag him off early to Pilate. Now, early here is probably sometime right after daybreak, but before 6 a.m. So it's early. In fact, most of us are probably still sleeping. Not true, though, in this time, this place, this culture. And this is true, I think, in, in, in much of the, of the other parts of the world that don't have access to air conditioning and those kinds of things. And that is the day begins early while it's still cool, and then when the sun comes up and it heats up, the day kind of slows down. And the same was true for them there. So it's not unusual for them to be there trying to transact business early in the morning. That's not the point. That's not the point. Although certainly they would just as soon get this thing done with as quickly as they can. The city is stirring. It is awake. 6 a.m. is the time to begin to transact business. So that's not the big issue The point is what they want Pilate to do. They want a quick condemnation. They want him to simply ratify the decision that they've made and then get on with it. That's what they're looking for. Now again, in verse 28, the irony that comes out here is amazing. Right? They themselves did not enter into the praetorium, it says, in order that they might not be defiled but might eat the Passover. I can't let that go by without a couple of comments for you. Number one, the the defilement that they feared is most likely the, the defilement that was part of popular teaching and lore among the Jewish community of the first century. And that was that the Gentiles would without being gross here, would would dispose of abortions down the drains of their homes. That was what was the prevailing thought at the time. The barrier between Jew and Gentile was so huge, the distrust, the misinformation, the slander and the bigotry was huge. And so the common notion among the Jewish community was that that's what Gentiles did. And the reason that that would cause such defilement is is built out of the law in Numbers 9, which says that the contact with a dead body or being in the home of a dead, where a body has been, you know, a dead body has been, creates ritual defilement. And so they don't want to enter into the praetorium here because they are concerned that somehow contact with this Gentile home will give them ritual defilement. And as John says, they won't be able to eat the Passover. It's of passing interest, I think, with regard to the whole pro-life question. Sometimes that comes up. You know, what did the what did the early church and early Jewish community think about that? Well, it's an interesting thought. If you would just stop and ponder that for a moment, it wasn't true that they flushed abortions down the drain. At least, not universally true. But the interesting point is that uh, the just the fear of that in the mind of the Jewish community, equating this act of abortion with the disposal of a real person, 
right? A dead body. That's what Numbers 9 says, that contact with a dead person is what brings this ritual defilement. And so what did the first century Jewish community think about abortion? They thought that they were taking real lives of real people, not little bundles of tissue. But beyond that, there is other points of interest in this verse. It says they don't want to be defiled so they might eat the Passover. You see that again? Now that brings us to an interesting dilemma because according to uh, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Last Supper, eaten, I believe, on Thursday evening, was a Passover meal. They clearly say it as such. Yet look again here at verse 28. The leadership does not want to enter into the praetorium so they might not be defiled because they want to eat the Passover. Do you see it? So how could it be that Jesus on Thursday night eats the Passover and the Jewish authorities have not yet eaten the Passover, it being early Friday morning? Now, depending who you want to read and think about this, some will say, well, then clearly John made a mistake. The Last Supper of John 13 is not a Passover meal. The problem with that is that the synoptic gospels say it is. So if you, you know, say John says it isn't, then you have a problem. You've got gospel writers contradicting each other, so that's unacceptable. Others would postulate various other kinds of solutions to this, but the one that I think works the best, makes the most sense of the, of the text, and illustrates amazingly the providence of God, and that's the point that I want to bring out of it, is the fact that the, the Jews of northern Palestine, that would be those from the region of Galilee, and most of the Pharisees celebrated or, or, or marked their day from sunrise to sunrise. Whereas the southern Jews, those from around Judea and in the temple area, which would be the priests and the Sadducees, marked their day from sunset to sunset. Now, you might think that's pretty weird, right? To have two different times going on in the same country. But indeed, that was the reality at that time. The interesting implication of all of that is that that, because Jesus and his followers, except for Judas Iscariot, are all drawn from Galilee and would keep time in the Galilean fashion. Whereas the chief priests and the Sadducees here in verse 28 would be keeping time according to the southern fashion. The results of which is that the Passover for, for the Galileans is celebrated on on Thursday evening, the Passover for the southern Jews is celebrated on Friday evening. This, by the way, um, is good for the mechanics of Passover uh, celebration because they have to slaughter the lamb in a two-hour period of time. And because it is one of the national feasts of Israel, all of the nation was supposed to come and celebrate it at the temple area. So you can imagine the bottleneck to try to slaughter enough lambs within the two-hour window to get it all done. So this really kind of works well. You do it on Thursday night and you do it on Friday night. Beyond that, you keep the hicks from up north from, from uh, mixing with the sophisticates from down south. And that kind of limits the uh, amount of inter... Um, uh, disharmony that would occur when you mix people from the south and the north. I said the Hicks were from the north, right? I mean, I know, it's not that way in our country, right? The Hicks are from, yeah, from the north, that's right. 
So it has some practical benefits of doing that. But the interesting thing is, and that's sort of the reason I paused to talk about this, is because Jesus celebrates the Passover Thursday night with his disciples, right? And there at that Passover, he transforms it, right? He makes it into this. Isn't that right? This is the blood of the covenant. He takes the Passover celebration and he transforms it that evening into the Lord's Supper that we're going to partake of a little bit later this morning ourselves. He inaugurates the new covenant in his blood. So he transforms that Passover by being able to eat it with his disciples on Thursday evening. Yet at the same time, the scriptures most clearly says that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 that he is our Paschal Lamb. He is our Passover sacrifice. And so then on Friday evening afternoon, when he hangs on that cross, he is dying on the cross at the same time of the slaughter of the Paschal Lambs. So by the amazing providence of God, Jesus both celebrates the Passover and is the Passover all at the same time. Third. Again, take a look at that verse. They don't want to enter in so that they might not be defiled. So they might not be defiled. What an amazing statement of hypocrisy, huh? They are involved in a judicial murder. They have rigged the legal system so that they might get rid of Christ. And they're going to kill him. That was decided a long time ago, John 11, right? We're going to kill him. It's just a matter of when and where. But they want to do it in some kind of quasi-legal quasi form. And so what they're involved in is legal murder, yet at the same time they're scrupulously trying to keep the law. Do you see it? Verse 28, they don't want to be defiled. They don't want to be defiled. Well, beloved, as ugly as that is, that is a glimpse of the human heart. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9 makes it pretty clear, right? The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Hmm? Who can know it? I mean, it's easy to sit here and uh, in, in a sense of piety and moral superiority to say, I can't believe they would be so hypocritical. They're murdering the Christ and at the same time they're worried about ritual uncleanliness. Such hypocrisy. But lest we throw the stone too quickly, what about the hypocrisy that lies in our own hearts? Hmm? What about the hypocrisy that lies within us? I mean, what are we like outside of Sunday morning? If someone could accompany us throughout the week, a little mini cam, you know, and just sort of record. What we say, what we do, or better yet, suppose they could get a tape of the inside. What would it look like? Hmm? I mean, do we have one set of speech for Monday morning and another set of speech for Sunday morning? 
And we just hope that somehow we don't get confused and use our Monday speech on Sunday and be oh so embarrassed. Or do we perhaps fall into the trap of publicly lamenting the declining morality of our society while at the same time our own mind is a cesspool? Pornographic pornographic thoughts, images. Do we condemn the politicians for their corruption, right? That's a favorite sport, particularly among evangelical Christians. Do we take pot shots at Washington and our local leaders while at the same time cheating on our income tax? Underreporting our income, you know, that cash stuff that comes throughout the year that doesn't show up on your W-2. You know what I'm talking about. Or maybe over-reporting our deductions. These are the places where hypocrisy shows itself in our lives and many, many more, right? Hypocrisy. Bane of human existence. So they won't enter in, verse 29, but Pilate goes out to them. He has his servants move his judgment chair out to a, to a porch overlooking what John tells us in chapter 19. They call it the pavement. It's a, it's a large area of paving stones. And so he sits there on the porch and they come before him. They won't come in. He goes out to them, verse 29. He goes out to them and he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now, again, it's worth pausing and talking about Pilate just a little bit. Let's get a measure of the man Pilate. He is the fifth procurator of Judea, appointed in A.D. 26. He lasts 10 years. He is a Roman. And as the Roman procurator of, of this uh, of Judea, he has the power of life and death. He has the final word. He is the one who must ratify in a death sentence the, uh, the decision of the local court, that is the Sanhedrin. So he legitimately has that kind of power. He also has, and goes with it, the ability to conduct an investigation in any way he chooses. So those of you who have heard that, that Pilate conducts the trial in some sort of illegal fashion, put that notion away because that's not true. Everything Pilate does is within the law. Because the law grants him incredibly broad power. He actually has authority over the very temple itself and the high priest. He's the one who appoints the high priest. He's the one who deposes the high priest. Actually, in the fortress Antonia that sits on the, on the corner of the temple mount, he has control over the, the vestments of the high priest. He's the one who lets them out once a year for the high priest to use them for the Day of Atonement, and he takes them back. So he's got that kind of authority. He is a typical Roman, that is, he is stern and practical. And he has absolutely no use for the Jewish nation. They are rebellious, they are tenacious, they are unbending, and they are difficult to govern. And so it is not a political plum to be chosen as procurator of Judea. It's not a good deal, it's not a, a nice posting. 
Okay, it's, it's kind of being stuck on the, on the backwater, on the outskirts, governing a people who refuse to be governed. And Pilate makes a mess of it. Historians tell us when he first assumes his role as procurator, his, his residence being in Caesarea, coming only into the city of, of, of Jerusalem at the times of the feasts and festivals so that he might be there where the action is. But when he first enters into the city, he ignores the, the, uh, the advice of his predecessors. He brings his troops in at night and he has them carry their, their Roman standards with them, their banners. And on those banners, there is an image of Caesar as God. And so he comes into the city by night. He goes into the, into the fortress Antonia and he places his standards on the wall so that they can be seen by all the city. Remember, the fortress is on the edge of the Temple Mount, the highest point in the city. And when the sun comes up, Pilate's in town, the nation looks up, and they see an image of a god. Now, if the Babylonian captivity did anything, it knocked that idolatry out of them. They cannot abide it. And so they send a delegation to Caesarea to petition Pilate to take the standards down, and he says no. And so the people fall on the ground, and they weep, and they, and they uh, are are moaning and groaning for five days outside of his residence. And he can't stand it anymore, so he forms a plan, and he says, I'll tell you what, meet me in the local racetrack, and we'll decide the issue there. And he places his soldiers in hiding inside the racetrack, and he says, when I give you this signal, you come out, you draw your swords, and I will tell them that if they don't disperse, they'll just cut their heads off. That's my plan. So he draws all of these these protesters, okay, you can just you get the picture, right? People outside of the White House, you know, protesting. So, you know, they draw them into a local racetrack. And he says, now disperse. I'm done with this. And if you don't, he gives the command. Out come the soldiers. They pull out their swords. If you don't disperse, we're going to cut all your heads off. And all the protesters fall on the ground, pull back their cloak and expose their neck and say, have at it. Pilate flinches and orders the standards removed. Now, those of you who are parents, you know what happens when you give an ultimatum and then fail to follow through with it, right? That little rascal now owns you, okay? <laughs> he now owns you. And that's what happened to Pilate. The beginning of his rule and reign in, in Judea, he, they own him. He threatens him and he fails to follow through. But that's not enough for Pilate. He continues on. The nation, uh, the city of Jerusalem needs more drinking water. He says, I know what, we'll build an aqueduct. Great idea, Pilate. And we'll pay for the aqueduct by taking it from the proceeds of the temple treasury. Bad idea, Pilate. <laughs> so there's a, another huge outcry against him for doing this. And he decides this is the way I'll solve this one. He dresses a few of his soldiers in uh, plain civilian clothes with a club under their robe. And he says, when I come into the city and all the protesters gather around me, you, I'll give the signal, you pop out and you club them into submission. He comes into the city, out come the protesters, he gives the signal, out come the clubs. And in the process, a number of people are killed. They're literally clubbed to death. There's a stampede, people are trampled. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. The Bible records for us in Luke 13, 1, another occasion, we don't know anything beyond this, where it says that he mingled the blood of, of the Galileans with their sacrifices. You remember that? I mean, that's Pilate. 
That's the way he dealt with his issues. I just club him into submission. That's how I'll take care of that. It's an interesting thought here, by the way, because um, the Gospels indicate that Herod, who ruled in Galilee, and Pilate had animosity towards one another. You remember that? And it's resolved in the, in the Roman trials by sending Christ to Herod. Possibly the reason they have this animosity towards one another is that, that when Pilate spilled the blood of the Galileans with their, with their sacrifice, he was killing Herod's subjects. And, um, you know, people get kind of finicky about that when you start killing somebody else's peasants. They don't like that. Well, it doesn't end there for, per- for Herod. In 8032, he decorates Herod's palace in Jerusalem with golden shields on which are the, the, um, the name of the emperor, and, and it says that he's a god. And again, golden shields, right? You look up, you see him. There's, the, there's Tiberius, the emperor, God. Well, the people are not very happy. They tell Pilate, take him down. He says, no, I won't take him down. They say, fine, we'll send a delegation to Rome and we will, we will partition Tiberius Caesar to have you take him down. That's exactly what they do. They, they partition Tiberius Caesar. He says, well, of course they have to come down. And he, has a, he writes a formal rebuke to Pilate. He says, don't be an idiot. Take the things down. As far as Rome is concerned, there's only two things that matter in the governance of a province. Number one, tax revenue. Keep the tax revenue flowing in. Number two, don't rile up the people in such a way that it requires us to send an expensive military contingent to put down the insurrection. I mean, if you want to club them to death, we don't care. We just don't want to have to pay to send an army to put them under control. So keep the money coming and keep it at a low enough level of peace that we don't have to send out the army. So now back to John here, verse 29. This is the background on Pilate. You can see that by this point, the Jews have his number. That's That's what we need to remember. So he goes out to them and he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? Notice their answer, verse 30. They answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Thank you very much. I mean, it, you, can, you can sense the belligerence in their answer in verse 30. I mean, they expect Pilate to rubber stamp their decision. I mean, after all, just a few hours earlier, he had dispatched a a cohort of Roman soldiers to go and to arrest this Galilean carpenter. And so in their minds, it's a foregone conclusion that he's going to agree to execute them. But this is not the case. They bring it to Pilate. And then Pilate turns around and says, well, what's your charge? And they say, what are you? Crazy pilot? I mean, if he were not a bad guy, we wouldn't have given him to you. You know, just take our word for it and kill him. That's all we want. Just kill him for us. Here's Christ standing there, by the way. He's already been physically pummeled by the Sanhedrin earlier that night. Undoubtedly, there's some swelling going on in his face, a fair amount of bruising, probably. Perhaps some blood that's spattered down onto his robes. Here he's standing there. And they're saying, this guy's an evildoer. And I think Pilate looks at him and he says, didn't look too dangerous to me. And so he says, what is your charge? 
Now, why Pilate, who I think I've established for you, was anything but a sympathetic guy, why he all of a sudden undertakes for a Jewish peasant, no one will ever know. I mean, I think the best answer that I can come up with is the sovereignty of God, right? Acts 2, according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So Pilate, he, he wants to know what the charge is. And the, and the people, they're kind of knocked back on their heels. And their first response is, well, if he wasn't an evildoer, we wouldn't have brought him. That's not a good enough. And so Luke adds to us, Luke 23, verse 2, they kind of respond back after the initial shock. And they begin to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he is Christ, a king. So that's their, that's their charge now. All of it fallacious, right? Misleading the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. In fact, Jesus earlier, when they tested him, he said, bring me a coin, right? Whose likeness is on the coin? You remember this? Right? Render to Caesar, thing of Caesar's. He didn't forbid the paying of taxes. In fact, he encouraged the payment of taxes. So they've twisted that around. And they know that as a Roman procurator, the only thing you're really concerned about is rebellion. And so they now say that Christ makes himself out to be a king. That's treason. They figure that'll get his ear. Treason. So how does Pilate respond? Verse 31. Pilate therefore said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. Take him yourselves. Fascinating, isn't it? I mean, treason, Pilate, that ought to interest you. But it doesn't. And I think the answer is given to us actually over in Matthew 27, verse 18. It says, he knew they had delivered Jesus up because of envy. I think the answer is that he sees right through the hypocrisy of the whole thing. And for, for the reasons that we don't know other than the sovereignty of God, he doesn't want to be a part of this. I think it's he hates them. He hates the Jewish authorities. He hates what they've done to him. They've manipulated him at every turn, and he's refusing to be manipulated here. And so he says, take him yourself. Take him yourself. And they respond back, right? Verse 31, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. Well, that is anyone except Stephen. We'll do that here just a little bit later, right? We'll stone him. It's not that they are so law-abiding. That's not the point. The point is that they don't, they want Pilate to kill him, not them. Why? Why is it so important that Pilate kill him? The answer is in the form of death. Romans executed treasonous people and peasants, non-citizens, by crucifixion. The Jews executed by stoning. They stoned Stephen, right? They want Jesus crucified, not just dead. If they just wanted him dead, they would have killed him when they had him. Now they want him crucified. We're not permitted to put anyone to death. Notice how John, verse 32, sees this, the gospel writer. That the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke signifying what kind of death he was to die. See, Jesus had to be crucified. Just dying wasn't enough. The very crucifixion itself is part of the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. 
Jesus could not have been beheaded. He could not have been stoned. He could not have been strangled. He could not have been drowned. The only way Jesus could die was by crucifixion. And there is a... There is a theological reason why that's true. I'll get to that in a moment. But the reason why the Jewish authorities, Caiaphas, wants him crucified lies in in their desire to humiliate him. See, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23 says, He who is hanged is accursed of God. They want him to be cursed. Killing him is okay, it kind of gets him out of the way, but if they kill him, it could make a martyr out of him. His followers would still, in their mind, continue to, to pursue after him. They would see him as a martyr who had been unjustly killed. But if they crucify him, then he hangs on a tree, and according to their own law, Deuteronomy 21, he is cursed of God. He's cursed of God. That will break his popularity. You remember earlier in, in chapter 18, verse 19, when Annas is first interviewing Jesus? Did your eyes flip over there again? You remember this from a few weeks ago? The high priest therefore questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Annas wants to know how big is the following? How many disciples do you have? And how highly placed are they in Jewish society? That's what he's after. See, this whole plan has been worked out. We will not only arrest him, we will not only unjustly condemn him, we will not only kill him, but we will force the Romans to crucify him. And in the process of crucifying him, we will get rid of this pesky Galilean carpenter once and for all, and we will not only kill him, we will break his popularity because he will be bound under the curse of God. So it was huge for them that he be crucified. That is the reason, beloved, as this will begin to unfold further for us, that their insistence upon his crucifixion, they will not bend on this point. He must be crucified. Must be. Because they want him cursed. Again, back to verse 32, John says, This fulfills the word of Jesus. So from Jesus' point of view, he must be crucified. Drowning, strangling, stoning, etc. is not good enough. He must be crucified. Why? Well, back in John's Gospel in John chapter 3, verses 13 and 14... It says, And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He must fulfill the typology of the bronze serpent, the Old Testament. He must be lifted up. Over in John 12, he says that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me, speaking of his crucifixion. But that still doesn't really answer the question. Why must Jesus be crucified? The answer is, is because he must be cursed of God. 
He must be cursed of God. He must be under the curse of Deuteronomy 21, just like Caiaphas wants to put him under. Caiaphas wants to put him under the curse to break his popularity. Jesus knows that he must be under the curse in order to accomplish the purpose for which he's been sent. Let me see if I can demonstrate this to you quickly. So go with me over to Galatians chapter 3. Verse 10. Galatians 3.10. Paul is addressing in Galatians 3 this very question. The theological question of the crucifixion of Christ. He says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. That's us. We are under the curse of God, he's saying. You know the hypocrisy that I was speaking about earlier that infects each and every one of our hearts, right? That places us, along with many other things, under the curse of God. So Jesus, flipping over to verse 13, Galatians 3, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. See, we're cursed. We're cursed for failure to keep the law. Jesus kept the law perfectly. Isn't that right? But Jesus hangs on a tree in crucifixion and becomes the cursed object of God, bearing on him all of our curses. If he had died by stoning, he would not have been accursed of God. The only way to be accursed of God was to hang on a tree in crucifixion. The only way he could substitute himself for us in our curse is to put himself into a position whereby he became accursed. Hanging on a tree. Hanging on a tree. It's an incredible thought. It's an incredible thought. His enemies want him crucified so that he would be cursed of God and lose his popularity. Jesus knows he must be crucified so that he may be cursed of God and stand in for his people as a substitutionary atonement. The whole doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ is inextricably bound into the crucifixion. He could not take your place had he not been crucified. He enters in to your curse. I'll tell you what, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take this table together. Okay? Gentlemen, come on up. see if I can tie this together for you here at the table. Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11, 
that when we take this meal together, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Is that right? Okay. What is it that we're proclaiming? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says what we're proclaiming. He says, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed Jews seek for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, foolishness. A stumbling block to the nation of Israel. Messiah, the Blessed One, hanging on a tree under the curse of Deuteronomy 21, that is a stumbling block. It's an impossibility to get over. To the Gentiles, a crucified God is foolishness. Foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What is it that we proclaim? What we are proclaiming here, beloved, is the foolishness of God. The foolishness of God. The bread, the cup, the body and the blood of a crucified Messiah who hung on Calvary's tree in order that he might take our curse onto him. And that he might give us freely his righteousness. That is the message of redemption. That is the message that this table proclaims. As we take together, think on these things. Let's pray. God our Father, the plan of salvation is so beyond human conception. There is no possible way that this is the product of a human mind. The very thought of God himself coming in human flesh and dying the despicable death of crucifixion under the very curse of God is anathema to those who do not believe. Yet to us who are the called, this very plan that is moronic in the sight of those that are wise, that is abominable in the sight of those who are religious, is the message of redemption, is the only way to Jesus, uh, to you through Christ. So our Father, we celebrate this meal together. This communion supper. This memorial that 
celebrates the inauguration of the new covenant as Jesus himself declared it on that night alone in the room with his disciples. Our Father, as we take together of these elements, may the joy of knowing that our guilt has been nailed to the cross of Christ and that the debt has been forgiven. That as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. We thank you in the name of the one whose death we commemorate, Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.